All right, playing a little air drums there. Welcome to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Wardle, and the confusion stops here. Today, we are going to take a look pretty much for the, uh, the whole show after this segment, uh, looking at the relationship between faith and reason. We're going to take on a very popular piece of Catholic kryptonite, which is uh, tackling the question, is the Catholic Church anti-science? Kind of a uh, canard that's long been debunked. We're going to talk about that in some detail. Uh, but first, though, last week we talked about the senses of Scripture, the literal sense and the spiritual senses. And I said this week that I would share with you a method for you to fruitfully read the Scripture, either on your own or with your family. And this applies especially to dads, but really to everybody. And, and just as a reminder, reading the Bible is, is wonderful. It's highly encouraged for Catholics. But as lay people, you know, it's not up to us to interpret the Scripture for ourselves in matters of doctrine. Right? If, you have, <laughs> if you're having some moral dilemma, you don't get to go to Scripture and say, oh, well, this lets me off the hook. You know, I, on the way up here, I was listening to uh, <clears throat> another network that shall remain nameless, and uh, the, the host was talking about St. Paul and saying that those who are walked by the Spirit are not under the law. And, you know, we have the idea, oh, I guess that means we get to do whatever we want. It's like, no, not at all. He's saying um, that you're not, uh, don't have to follow all of those minute uh, dietary laws and so forth, the, the 613 different laws that the Pharisees Observe No, but uh, Ten Commandments are uh, do not have any expiration date, right? So we don't get to make up our own doctrine, but we are encouraged to engage regularly with the Scriptures uh, in what might be termed existential reading of Scripture, what employing the senses of Scripture with the purpose of reading and meditating on and praying the words of the Bible in order to apply what we read to our own personal life. That's really what, uh, what a good homily is meant to do. So it's only through application that the Bible becomes a living word, but the Bible becomes God's word for you today. And I mentioned, I think, last week that the traditional way to approach the Bible for Catholics has uh, first always been the liturgy, both the readings at the Holy Mass and also the Divine Office or Liturgy of the Hours as well as the practice of Lexio Divina, which is a Latin phrase meaning divine reading. And it's, the, thing, the point is that it's kind of a systematic way of reading. It's a method. It's a plan. Um, and you follow four steps. There's the Lexio, which is the reading, and then Meditatio, or meditation, followed by Contemplatio, or contemplation, and then Oratio, or prayer. And that's Lexio Divina. And, of course, there's lots of materials on that. And the U.S. bishops, you go to usccb.org and just search Lexio Divina. There's a a PDF you can download uh, to help you with that practice. But since I know that a majority of the listeners to this program are men, I wanted to share with you a personal method of Lexio Divina that's applicable to family Bible study. Uh, And and naturally, of course, even if you're not a husband or father, you can benefit from this method Uh, of approaching scripture, either alone or with a group. But if you're a dad especially, it provides a way for you to take your place as the spiritual head of the household without needing to be a Bible scholar. Now, as with any kind of Bible reading, for it to be effective, it requires three things. And that's a time and a place 
and a plan. So you can choose to do your study at a certain time of day or, or a certain day of the week or whatever, maybe after dinner, before bedtime, um, uh, after Holy Mass on Sunday, whatever it might be. You might want to gather around the coffee table or in the living room or, you know, the kitchen table. And, and of course, you should know what you're going to be reading, right? That's the plan part. And the Sunday Gospel is a natural choice if you're doing kind of a weekly family Bible reading. So there are these steps, and it's very much like Lexio Divina. The first step, though, uh, is to pray. I think naturally you begin with a prayer as, as Catholics, right? Your family's going to be entering into a dialogue with God, right? We talked about that, that, uh, that we speak to God when we pray, and, and he answers when we read the Holy Scriptures. That's St. Augustine. So this is a dialogue with God. And so you want to ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand the message that he has for you in that reading. And you can pray in your own words, of course, uh, and there are prayers before beginning a good work and whatnot you might find in your prayer book. But it's customary before reading scripture to pray the Veni Sancti Spiritus, the come Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit and they shall be created and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Terrific prayer uh, to begin with. Also, speaking of prayer, a partial indulgence is granted to the faithful who with the reverence due to the divine word, okay, so praying uh, prayerfully and, and uh, respectfully with reverence, uh, the, the, the faithful that make a spiritual reading from sacred scripture, you, you get an indulgence. And should you um, continue that reading for at least a half hour under the usual conditions, you can gain a plenary indulgence. So Bible reading is, is good for you in more ways than one. All right, so you begin with a prayer. The next step, of course, is to read the chosen passage. And if you're doing it in a group, you have someone read it out loud. Uh, and, and, you know, slowly, prayerfully. And if you're doing it with children, for the sake of their comprehension, I suggest that you might want to choose a more dynamic uh, translation of Scripture, maybe like the New American Bible or even, you know, the Good News translation. Or you might consider even... Um, with smaller kids especially, using a solid Bible history, like the, the classic Bible history by Ignatius Schuster that a lot of homeschoolers use. They used to use it in schools, Catholic schools. Or um, Catholic Book Publishing Company a number of years ago, I think back in the early 80s, put out the new Catholic Picture Bible, which is uh, um, the Bible stories are kind of um, paraphrased by Father Lavosik. And so I'm sure you know anybody with kids, especially homeschoolers, are going to know Father Lavosik from those wonderful little books, you know, the whole series of books that they put out. Anyway, um, these things are readily available, both of them, and, uh, you know, they always, they give, uh, at least the, the Schuster one gives the chapter uh, and verse references based on the traditional Dewey Reims, uh, English translations adapted, though, to a more kind of natural style. And I like that because it's, um, it's an introduction to that more formal translation. You know, it's one thing to use something that's in contemporary English, and it's another thing to use something that's been adapted, but is still in the kind of language that you would expect from reading the traditional translation. So you're going to encounter those things that you're familiar with. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, right? Um, greetings, favored one, is not going to find its way into the uh, <laughs> Dewey Reeves Bible. Uh, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, right? So they're not going to be so allergic to male pronouns that you wind up with, uh, you know, no, no one has greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
It sounds like you're having tea at Downton Abbey, right? <laughs> oh, yes, well, one does lay down one life for one's friends, doesn't one, you know, right? Um, anyway, even with a translation that is more geared to understanding and maybe avoid some of the difficult words, it's inevitable that you're going to come across um, unfamiliar terms and phrases and figures of speech that you're going to have to explain to the kids. And, um, you know, having a Bible with some footnotes or using a Bible history or a, a concordance or glossary, whatever, you're going to be able to find the meanings of those things. might even be well for you to read it a little ahead of time um, and see if there's anything like that that you need to look up yourself. All right, after the reading, you're going to want to ask the kids questions about the story. Uh, you know, and this is another argument for the use of a good uh, Bible history, because as they say, a, a story well told is half explained. In any case, you have to make sure that the main points of the passage are understood and that the characters stand out as real living people in the minds of the children. See, that, that first impression is the, is the peg that everything else hangs on. And it's like the old saying goes, if you don't drive the nail in far enough, it won't hold the picture. All right, and then the next step is to reflect. So you've, you've prayed, you've read, now you're going to reflect. Reflecting or meditating on what you've just read. That's a key uh, um, part of the process of effective Bible reading. There's a pastoral statement from the U.S. bishops uh, a number of years ago that suggests asking questions. You know, what's the Holy Spirit telling us in this passage? What's God telling us about himself? What, what, what's he saying about the Father, about Christ, about us, about our salvation? You know, how, how does he, is he asking us to respond to his word? You know, today, in prayer or in, in our life, right? These are the kind of questions that help you to dig deeper into the meaning of the passage. And some people find it helpful to write their answers in a journal or a notebook. I've never had the discipline to do this. But a lot of people who are smarter than I am recommend it, so I'm going to recommend it too. But uh, it's also a good idea to, to just reread the passage and see if anything else jumps out at you after having taken some time to reflect. And this is the point now. You know, up till now, it's just been, you know, you and your reading and your prayer and your reflection. And now is the time to turn to a good commentary. You know, Catholics have a, a rich and beautiful and long tradition of biblical interpretation, and it helps our understanding to consider the thoughts of those who have studied and commented on the scriptures over the whole life of the church. <clears throat> you know, both for personal and family Bible reading, I cannot recommend highly enough a practical commentary on Holy Scripture by Bishop Eustace Necht. Now, it's available, I think, still from Tan Books. Um, you can also find it online. And it actually uses Ignatius Schuster's Bible history as a text. And, and it goes through the whole um, Bible. You know, it starts with creation all the way up through the Acts of the Apostles. And the, the cool thing about it, of course, is that it is arranged chronologically, so you don't have to jump back and forth in your Bible. And the, uh, the Gospels are arranged harmoniously, right? So if there's a Gospel passage that appears in, in two or more of the Gospels, those various accounts are harmonized into one narrative. And I think this is really important for Catholics to be able to get a real grasp of that. Okay, more on this when we come back, talking about tips for family Bible study right here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stick with us, and we will be right back after these messages.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the Help of the Helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we come to understand. According to St. Augustine, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. May God grant us a strong living faith in Him and His divine plan of salvation and help us to believe so that we may understand. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871 because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your internet home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Going to be talking later in the program about the relationship between faith and reason, tackling some Catholic kryptonite, uh, taking on the question, is the Catholic Church anti-science? I think you probably already know the answers, but there's a a lot of uh, fun dialogue that we're going to get into. Uh, In the meantime, we've been talking about tips for family Bible reading, and we've gone over several steps to pray, and then to read the reading, to reflect, and then we've been talking about um, the reflection, do our personal reflection, and then looking at a commentary, and I've been talking about practical commentary on Holy Scripture by Bishop Eustus Necht, um, and, um, which I really, again, I, I uh, highly recommend, and I think that um, approaching the Bible as a Bible history, learning that and learning how it happens in chronology and all that stuff. Um, you know, the Bible history that he uses as a text gives you the actual uh, scripture references. So if you want to go and look at it that way, you are certainly welcome to do that. Harmonizes the Gospels. And um, you can also, you know, using those references, you can go to your preferred Bible translation, read it there. Also, there's profuse footnotes for the text itself. Very informative. Commentary solid comprehensive, and important to me, it's traditional. 
And another plus is at the end of the commentary for each chapter, there is a short application. And that is the next step in your reading plan, which is application. In St. Paul's first letter to Timothy, he says, All scripture inspired of God is profitable to teach, to reprove, to correct, to instruct in justice, that the man of God may be perfect, furnished to every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. So what, what that means is that the Bible doesn't just give us information about God, but also helps us to live in right relationship with him and with each other. So after reflecting on the meaning of the passage, reading a good commentary, uh, it's time for, for everyone to ask themselves or, and to share with each other, how does what we have just discovered about the Word of God, how does it apply to my life today? How can I bring that into my situation at home or at work or at school or at church okay, into my uh, other personal relationships? Because if we cooperate with God's grace, the Holy Spirit can use this encounter with uh, the scriptures to help shape our lives in the direction of greater holiness uh, so that we can become more Christ-like. And that's why this step, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the step that is all important because it's only when we apply what we read in the scripture to our lives that the Bible becomes alive for us and becomes God's word for us today. And then finally... You pray again. You end your journey into God's Word the same way that you began with prayer. And you thank God for uh, coming to you, for sharing His Word with you and with your family or your group. Uh, you ask the Father through the Son and in the Holy Ghost to help you live out and apply what you have learned together. And on the day or days that you do the family Bible reading, you can take your discoveries from Scripture and bring them into your um, you know, your family prayer life, you know, into the intentions of your family rosary, for example. By reading, by praying, by living out the truths of Scripture, you will make God's Word come alive in your family. And that's no nonsense. And by the way, I, I, I've mentioned this more than once, um, <clears throat> and this has happened to me more than once, where I'm talking with someone, Catholic, who's well-versed in the Scripture. In this case, I was talking to a a Catholic scripture scholar, someone with a PhD, you know, in, uh, in biblical theology. And uh, as I recall, we were talking about the parable of the marriage feast, and I brought out um, a point about the bride that was uh, common knowledge, you know, 100 years ago, and then from there back all the way to the early days of the church, but he'd never heard it before. He said, where do you get this stuff? And I told him, you're, eventually you're going to have to break down and read a book that was written before Vatican II. Uh, you know, if you want to understand Scripture in the way that the saints and the doctors of the church did, then the, you're going to have to understand that, um, you know, we've, we've lost some things in the shuffle of modern critical uh, scholarship and commentary. And, you know, the, the old commentaries reflect the traditions that were, you know, like you say, like the fathers and doctors and your patron saint the way that they understood the Bible. You know, I think that, uh, you know, you, you do, if you want to understand that, you do well to read these older books. So I already uh, mentioned a practical commentary on Holy Scripture by Bishop Eustus Necht, and there's some other commentaries. Uh, the Catena Aurea, or the Golden Chain of St. Thomas Aquinas, is a verse-by-verse -verse commentary uh, of the four Gospels. And so each verse is followed by commentary 
compiled by Aquinas. This is, uh, um, Thomas Aquinas didn't write this commentary. It's a compilation of commentary, verse by verse, from the fathers and doctors of the church. So St. Augustine and St. Ambrose and uh, St. Jerome and so forth. Very, very valuable. Uh, a more modern one, the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible New Testament. It's just the New Testament. But this was, I remember uh, back at the turn of the century, talking to Scott Hahn about this and how excited he was. But he was you know, concerned this project was going to take years and years, that they want to do this Catholic Study Bible. And he and Curtis Mitch uh, got together to prepare this commentary. And what they wound up doing with Ignatius Press is every, you know, they just did it in, in, in order, and every time they finished a book of the Bible, they would uh, um, publish it as a single volume, you know, just, just that book of the Bible and the commentary, so starting with the Gospels and the Acts and the letters of St. Paul and so on. And then finally, after they'd finished with that, they put it all under one cover, and that is available today. It's the uh, Ignatius Catholic Study Bible New Testament. And that has the benefit, I mean, it's pretty comprehensive. They have maps and, and uh, uh, word studies and, and so forth. And, and all that's very valuable. And it also uh, represents some of the best of contemporary scholarship, but without, you know, the, the liberal scholarship, to, if, you know, if you pardon me using that word. Okay, so that's very solid. Um, the Haydock Bible is a, uh, it's a Dewey-Reims Bible with another comprehensive commentary, but this is for the whole Bible, and it's like the Aquinas' golden chain. It's actually compiled from uh, fathers and doctors of the church and, and theologians and so forth over the life of the church. It was compiled by uh, Father George Leo Haydock back in the 1800s. And the, I have a version of it, which is large, like eight and a half by 11, you know, magazine size. Um, and it's in three volumes because it's a lot of commentary and, of course, the whole Bible. So there's a big, thick volume that is the Old Testament and then a thinner volume that's the New Testament and then a third volume, which is a Catholic... Bible uh, kind of dictionary, sort of an encyclopedia dictionary. So there's lots of articles on all the different books of the Bible and all the different, you know, things that you're going to encounter, um, you know, the animals and, and uh, the places and the rivers and whatnot, you know, every, just pretty much anything you can think of in the Bible, you can look it up in this dictionary. And uh, um, it is available still, and it's always kind of on the expensive side, and get a magnifying glass because you've got some, you know, crazy small print. And then there's also the um, Goffin's Explanation of the Epistles and Gospels by the Reverend Leonard Goffin. And that is based on the Sunday readings and the Holy Day readings of the traditional Latin Mass. So you have the, the actual readings uh, following the, the traditional one-year lectionary with commentary and even catechetical instruction. So it's actually pretty comprehensive. And my understanding is that it was, um, it was published with an idea of people... Um, especially here in the United States, you know, people are going west in covered wagons or whatever, and it's going to take six months, and there's no churches in between here and there, so to speak. So they would bring this along with them as a way to, uh, you know, continue to um, engage with the, the readings from the Mass, even though they were unable to attend themselves. And, you know, it's the commentary kind of is the place of the homily. So <clears throat> that's really, I mean, I can't recommend that highly enough. The Catena Aurea, Practical Commentary on Holy Scripture, and Goffin's Explanation of the Epistles and Gospels, by the way, can all be found online in PDF form. But uh, as for me, I'd rather have the book because that's something, you know, when, uh, you know, I, sometimes I, I look at the modern world, and we're going to talk about science in a minute. I, uh, I was talking to my wife about this this morning, you know, that it's like the Tower of Babel. 
that we have built this huge, uh, you know, fortress of technology, and we've become so dependent on it. And uh, I haven't flown anywhere in a year almost uh, because of the lockdowns and all of that. But I used to fly quite a lot, giving talks and whatnot. I had to cancel a number of those, and we did some of them by Zoom and whatnot. But, um, you know, flying internationally, for me, that means going to LAX, Los Angeles International Airport, and going to the Bradley Terminal. And, you know, once you get through all the draconian security and you're inside, it's like, it's the future. It's like a science fiction movie. You know, you go down like a long escalator and there's giant video screens. I mean, giant, like two stories high. And all of the duty-free shops and everything is all shiny and polished up and it's high fashion and it's, you know, high-end liquor and tobacco and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. That people can buy, you know, duty-free because you're buying it here in the international airport. So you don't have to pay the duty on it to bring it back into your home country or whatever. And it is just, it's amazing. It's like stepping into, if, if Vogue magazine was a building, you know. <laughs> and, and it's quite, uh, quite startling. But I think to myself, you know, one good earthquake and it all comes crashing down. And we think about that, you know, I, I think that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I think we forget in our uh, attempts to control the natural world and decide for ourselves what's right and wrong and good and evil. Um, you know, we forget that, that um, nature has a way of asserting herself. And you see that. You see what happens when um, hurricanes hit and so forth. I mean, I, I don't know the science about this, but I've heard people talk about, you know, uh, solar flares and so forth. You know, it's a kind of thing that, that happens periodically that could, uh, uh, you know, shut the computers off. And wouldn't that be something, you know? And anyway, I, I bring all this up because you'll be happy to have that book <laughs> and not just have it bookmarked on your smartphone. Okay. <clears throat> Speaking of which, oh, Catholics today, we are so often challenged about our beliefs uh, from many quarters. And of course, increasingly, the challenge comes from those who do not believe in God at all. If agnosticism was a religious, uh, you know, a religion, it would be the fastest growing one in the country. You know, and it, people that don't believe in God, people who think that the faith uh, is just ridiculous on its face. Um, I remember a number of years ago, I think it was around 2012 or so, uh, there was a big um, march of, of atheists and agnostics uh, in Washington, D.C., Maybe like 20,000 of them gathered together to uh, celebrate the fact that they don't believe in anything, I guess, and, and to ridicule people of faith. And there was a lot of celebrities there, and one of the keynote speakers was, was Richard Dawkins, kind of the champion of, of atheism or anti-theism. And it's, so this is definitely on the rise. And today more than ever, I think uh, to be a believing Catholic, to become one, to stay one, you have to know more than just what the church teaches, but, but why, okay? And that's apologetics, and, and we know, you know, St. Peter says, always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you a reason for your hope, okay? And that's what we're going to do when we come back. We're going to talk about objective truth. We're going to talk about the relationship between faith and reason. We're going to be talking about the church and her relationship with the sciences and give you some ammunition so that you can defend your faith against challenges from unbelief when we come back with lots more no-nonsense catholic right here on virgin most powerful radio
Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day, I grabbed his phone, and I downloaded the app <laughs> for him. I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to Terry and Jesse's show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a week. Wow. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Daniel, what a testimony. And I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. If you shop on Amazon.com, There's an easy way to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Just visit smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center under the desired charity. Now, when you log into your Amazon account and purchase products, a portion of it will automatically go to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio at no cost to you. Thanks in advance for supporting CRC and VMPR, and may God richly bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for VMPR. We're talking about uh, the relationship between faith and reason, uh, the church and science, and the uh, the nature of truth. You know. Um, I'm going to say to you right now that at first glance, some of the things that I'm about to say may appear intolerant, particularly in our modern society where, um, you know, people believe that whether or not you believe in God or anything else for that matter, whether, whether or not, whether you're a woman who believes that she's a man or a man who believes he's a woman or somebody thinks they're both or neither, <laughs> that all of that is just a matter of personal choice. And this, of course, is the fruit of the notion that the you know that, that what's true for one person may not be true for another, that there isn't any one right way to understand anything. Now, in contrast, Catholicism is based on reason and faith in the revelation of God. So we claim to teach things that are true for everybody, whether you like it or not, whether you accept it or not. In other words, things that are objectively true. And St. Thomas Aquinas said, truth is conforming the mind to reality. Truth, simply put, is what's real. And the basic building block of rational thought is that some, a real thing can't be both true and false. 
Okay, things true or it isn't, and the same thing goes for God. You can't, uh, um, most especially, it's called the principle of non-contradiction. A thing can't be and not be in the same sense at the same time. So unlike a, a subjective truth, which is really just a matter of personal preference, like what kind of music you like or, or, or what food you like best, objective truth isn't determined by opinion, not even popular opinion, not even sincerity of belief. Because you can believe something sincerely and be sincerely wrong. I, I, for years, I've been using the example of a, a group of skydivers. To assume there's a group of skydivers, take a vote, they decide not to believe in the law of gravity. And they really believe it. I mean, they're so sincere that they decide to go up in a plane and jump without their parachutes. Now, what would happen? You know, they would plummet to the earth like so many bags of wet cement. Because, and that's the same thing it is with, with, with God and, and with his revelation and with the things that can be known by reason. Whether they're true or not, don't depend on you or your personal choice any more than gravity does. And anyway, tolerance. Tolerance does not mean accepting all points of view as equally valid. All right, can we underline that? Tolerance, let me say that again, does not mean accepting all points of view as equally valid because obviously they're not. What tolerance means is to welcome different points of view while respecting the other person, even though you might not necessarily agree. And that we could use more of. This is, this is the basis of charity. This is Christian love. But love and tolerance are not the same thing. Uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen said it very well. He said, Christian love bears evil, but does not tolerate it. It does penance for the sins of others, but it is not broad-minded about sin. He said, the cry for tolerance never induces the church to quench its hatred of the evil philosophies that have entered into contest with the truth. And he put truth, capital T, meaning our Lord Jesus Christ. Love forgives the sinner and hates the sin. It is unmerciful to the error in his mind. The sinner will always take back into the bosom of the mystical body, but his lie will never be taken into the treasury of his wisdom. Real love involves real hatred. Whoever has lost the power of moral indignation and the urge to drive the buyers and sellers from the temples has also lost a living and fervent love of the truth. Charity, then, he says, is not a mild philosophy of live and let live. It is not a species of sloppy sentiment. Charity is the infusion of the Spirit of God which makes us love the beautiful and hate the morally ugly. And with that in mind, let us proceed. Now, the first challenge, uh, you know, that I want to talk about is that faith is irrational. This is very, uh, very popular over the last, uh, you know, well, during my lifetime. It, it's ridiculous to believe in God, believe in all those fairy tales. It's irrational to have faith. Now, first off, um, you know, faith and reason go together. Um, imagine, if you will, uh, a choo-choo train, right? They're like an engine, and that engine's pulling a car, and behind that there's a caboose. And now imagine that the engine is, is, represents facts, okay? What can be known uh, about God and nature by reason? What can be, can't be known uh, by us without him telling us? You know, so in other words, his revelation, and those 
teachings of the church that have been d- defined as as de fide, as being of the faith. So, so faith and reason and uh, guided by the magisterium. That's the engine, the facts. And then the car that follows it, that's faith. That's the trust that we have in Christ, in, in human reason, in the authority of the church that Christ established. And then the caboose would represent the feelings that flow from this. Right? Religious sentiment has a place. And it does flow from that. But, but you can't pull a train by the caboose. Okay. So faith, by definition, faith means to believe in something that you can't prove. I mean, there are many mysteries of faith that are simply above human reason, although not opposed to it. So faith means believing in something you can't prove, but it doesn't mean believing in something for no reason. That would be irrational. 1998, John Paul II, uh, St. John Paul II wrote a 41-page encyclical on faith and reason just to show how they go hand in hand. And he said, and I quote, there can be no contradiction between faith and reason. Now, I don't have time to read the 41 pages, but I can give you the shorthand version. Say you want some chicken soup. So what do you do? You go to the supermarket and you find the soup aisle and you look for a can that says, you know, chicken soup, say Campbell's chicken soup. And then you buy it and take it home. Now, let's stop and think about this for a minute. Why do you think that can has chicken soup in it? Well, because of the label, right? But that's not proof. Might have the wrong label on it. You know, uh, somebody at the factory could have put on the wrong label by mistake, or the Campbell's people, for reasons of their own, perhaps have mislabeled it. And maybe inside that can there's tomato soup, or, or clam chowder, or it might not be soup at all. Maybe it's creamed corn or baked beans. You know, stop and think about it. There's a hundred things that might be in that can. But you buy it, believing that it's chicken soup, because you have reasons to believe. Because the can is in the soup aisle. And the label does say chicken soup. And Campbell's is a reputable company. So you trust that they put the right label on it and you trust that the supermarket put it in the right aisle. And so even though you don't have proof that there's chicken soup inside, you buy it on faith. Faith is not proof, but it's not irrational. In fact, I mean, this little example shows that you can't live your life without this natural faith. And religious faith is also a matter of trust based on reasons to believe. You know, see, so the cry of the atheist then is, well, if God exists, prove it. And what they mean is prove it empirically. You know, they, they would say scientifically. Well, but you can't prove God in that way. You know, uh, if science is about the study of the physical world and God exists outside of the physical world. Can't put God under a microscope. Now, what some people don't seem to understand, what they don't realize is you don't have to prove something empirically for it to be true. And I can give you a a good example right off the top of my head, and that's love. You know, you can't prove love scientifically either. You can't put it under a microscope any more than you can God. But love, peace, justice, freedom. Who's to say that these things don't exist? You see, this isn't due to some you know, fault uh, uh, or, or limitation on the part of God or on the part of love or freedom or justice, but the limitations of science because some things are beyond the purview of science. And science may not forbid you to believe in something that it's not competent to judge. 
God, like love, is outside the purview of science because it is not a matter of physics, but a matter of metaphysics. So the existence of God is beyond empirical proof. And by the way, if it, if it weren't, then we wouldn't be talking about God. However, the church teaches that the existence of God can be known by reason and by reason alone. And for this, we turn not to the physical sciences, but you have to go down the hall to the philosophy department. And you may be surprised to learn that the ancient Greek philosophers came to the conclusion that there is only one God and that God had certain attributes, that he was eternal and all-knowing and, and omnipresent and so on, through the use of reason alone, depart, you know, completely apart from divine revelation. St. Paul was himself a Hellenistic Jew. That means he, had a, uh, he was steeped in Greek culture and he had that uh, classical education. And he knew very well that the pagan philosophers had demonstrated the existence of God through natural philosophy, through reason. And that is why he can write in his letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is evident to them because God made it evident to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. In other words, the first way to know God is through the natural world. It's through the observation of the creation, the universe. And today, precisely because of advances in science, we can observe the universe uh, uh, better than we've ever been able to before. And so there are a number of things that we can observe regarding the universe. And I think I'll have time for one before we go to the break, and that's order. There's order in the universe, but order requires an orderer, right? The scientists now, they're the ones that tell us that we live in this vast galaxy that stretches out, you know, 13 billion light years in every direction. And, and, and maybe there's as many as a billion more galaxies beyond our own. And, and, but our galaxy, the Milky Way, is spinning at, at the incredible speed of almost 500,000 miles an hour. And even at that speed, it takes 200 million years to make a single rotation. And I don't know if any of this is really correct or not, because I'm not a scientist. This is revealed knowledge. But what I do know is that this complex ocean of spinning stars and planets functions with an amazing order and efficiency, just like somebody designed it that way. More on this when we come back. Uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, right after this. Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest, I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. You That's know, right. If God gave us a lot, you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this, I just want to call all the people, you know, I got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We gotta, we have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. 30 years old, 30 years old 29 years old. 
five kids, and I thank you guys. But everybody else, man, get on fire. Fight for the truth, man. I know what I'm telling you guys. There's I no love it. Out there. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we come to understand. According to St. Augustine, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. May God grant us a strong living faith in Him and His divine plan of salvation and help us to believe so that we may understand. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Talking about the relationship between faith and reason, talking about some of the building blocks of uh, reason in regard to the existence of God. We talked about uh, the, the universe shows forth great order, and that suggests that there was an intelligence that ordered it. Catholic apologist G.K. Chesterton said, if you find a watch in the desert, you know that it didn't just happen, right? So it didn't just spontaneously appear. It's many components uh, uh, spontaneously created and then blown together by the desert winds, right? You find a watch in the desert, and you know that somebody designed it, and somebody manufactured it, and somebody left it there. Now, the universe, of course, is far more complex than a watch, And so the universe couldn't have just happened either. The way Chesterton put it, he said, show me a watch without a watchmaker and I'll accept a universe without a universe maker. And I can can recall a number of years ago, and I wish I could remember uh, where I read it, but I was was reading an article by a physicist um, and he said that in the physical sciences, the evidence for design is so abundant that you have to constantly remind yourself that the physical world is really the consequence of random processes and not intelligent design. And I remember thinking to myself, what is this guy saying? I mean, in other words, he's saying God's hand in creation is so obvious, is so evident, that to remain a good materialist, he has to constantly uh, deny the evidence of his senses. He has to constantly ignore the evidence that's right in front of him. And that sounds more like ideology to me than science. And it seems to me also to believe that the universe just happened actually requires more faith than to believe that God created it. Another way that uh, classically to see God through reason is uh, by motion. You know, we said uh, just uh, before the break that scientists tell us that the entire galaxy is in motion. And if it is, something had to put it in motion. Like if you see a a really wrong, long train at a railroad crossing... You know, and you can only see the cars going by. You can't see either end of the train. But even though you you can't see the engine, you know there is one. I mean, at least one. 
because a train can't move by itself. Or maybe sometime you set up a long row of dominoes uh, and then uh, to set up that chain reaction where you knock over one and then they, they all uh, fall down one after the other. And it's the same as with the train. You know, if you saw a long row of falling dominoes, you'd know that somebody not only set them up in the first place, but then started them falling. So if there's motion, in other words, there needs to be a mover. And if the whole universe is in motion, then there must exist that which put it into motion. But, someone might ask, if God made everything, then who made God? This is a, this is a favorite question. And that one's easy. Nobody made God. If someone or, or something created God, then it would be greater than God. It, w- it would be God, okay? And, and that's impossible. Can't have more than one supreme being. And of course, God didn't make himself either, because that means that he would have had to exist before himself, which is also impossible. It's a contradiction. It's a nonsense. And this is no-nonsense Catholicism. So what, it pr- what does it prove? It proves that God's eternal, that he must have always existed so as to be able to bring everything else into existence. Let's put it this way. It's self-evident that nothing comes from nothing. Right? If you had a, um, some kind of aquarium that, that you could be certain would be impervious, and, and within that aquarium you create a vacuum, you could leave for 10 billion years. You know what? When you come back, you'll still be empty because nothing comes from nothing. That's, that's, everybody knows that. That's self-evident. So, since nothing comes from nothing, since the universe does exist, someone must have always existed in order to bring everything else into existence. And that someone is God. And we know that God is a someone and not a something because it's also self-evident that you can't give what you don't have. And since you and I are creatures uh, with intellect and will, that we possess those qualities, then God must also possess intellect and will. And so we know that God is a personal being. And all of this was understood by Aristotle centuries before Christ. And nothing has uh, come along to, to change that. What about... Um, what about the meaning and purpose of life? Again, if, if the, the universe is just a, the result of a bunch of random processes, it's just chance that it might not ever have happened, that it didn't have to happen, that it just sort of did happen with no plan, no, no design, no nothing behind it, then there is no meaning or purpose in anything. I mean, right now, I, I can just go get, get right back to uh, my plans for world domination because what else is there? St. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in Thee. And Thomas Aquinas argues that, that this longing for God, the longing for transcendence, the longing for um, you know, love and freedom and justice in their, in their totality, in their perfection, which is not obtainable here, that longing, which is in the heart of every human being, that desire for meaning and purpose and transcendence demonstrates the existence of God. Aquinas said, just like the experience of hunger demonstrates the existence of food, or thirst shows forth the existence of drink, the desire for God demonstrates the existence of God, because if he didn't exist, we wouldn't long for him. Order, motion, causality, these are just some of the many ways to discover God through reason. Aquinas listed five. Um, the Handbook of Christian Apologetics by Dr. Peter Kraft and Ronald Ticelli lists 20 intellectual arguments 
the existence of God. They've, they've been multiplying since the Middle Ages. Many entire volumes have been written on the subject. But of course, that isn't satisfactory for everybody. The agnostic says, well, maybe God exists, but if he does, how do we know him? How do we know what he's like? Well, St. Paul tells us that some of his traits or attributes are available from what we can know by reason alone, that he's eternal, that he's all good, that he's all powerful. And this brings in some, some real Catholic kryptonite. This is the big gun. And that's the existence of evil. If God is all good and all powerful, then why is there evil? If God wants bad things to happen, then he's not all good. And if he doesn't want bad things to happen and they do anyway, then he's not all powerful. This is one of the most convincing of the atheistic arguments. And philosophers call it the problem of evil. And people have been wrestling with it, you know, for who knows how long. And the question is, how can a good God create evil? Well, the Catholic Church has an answer. He didn't. Now, I'll give you an example here. Let's say, if I pick up a stick and I hit you with it, then we could agree that's evil. But the stick's not evil. Perfectly good stick. The hand that I use to pick up that stick is perfectly good, too. What's evil is the choice that I make, the choice to hit, and the act of hitting. And God's not responsible for the choice or the act. I am. You know, God made the stick and God made me, but I make myself evil. Strictly speaking, evil isn't a thing. It's an absence of good. So the other question is, and this is more to the point, why does God allow me to make that choice? For that matter, why does God allow uh, all the evil in the world, war and crime and famine and disease? And the answer might surprise you. The answer is love. That God allows evil because he loves us and because he wants us to love him. And the only way that we can love him is because he gives us free will so that we can choose to love him, so that we can choose the good and reject the evil. But we can also abuse our free will. That's what makes it free. We can choose evil. We can choose to ignore God. And God allows us because if he forced us to love him, we wouldn't have a free choice and it wouldn't really be love. And that's why he allows evil in the world and that's why he allows good people to suffer. And he, and he does it for the same reason, for love. You know, I've got six kids. Uh, the youngest is a teenager now. I mean, and the, some of them are out of the house and married and all that. <clears throat> but I, my wife and I homeschooled a bunch of them. And I made them do their own schoolwork. And for those of them, we got a couple in high school right now, one in junior high and one in high school. And we still make them do their own work. Why? Because I love them. You know, I, I make them do it even they don't, they don't like it. it. You know, they have to suffer through it. But, but if they didn't, they wouldn't learn anything. So even though doing the school works a pain, I make them suffer through it because I love them. So the point is that just because someone lets you suffer, that doesn't make them evil. Someone who is good and someone who loves you can still allow you to suffer sometimes. Now, of course, uh, uh, a lot of the suffering in the world is worse than doing homework, but God allows it for the same reason. And more to the point, suffering is good for us. It's good for the sinner because it gives him a reason to convert. It's good for the just because it gives them uh, the opportunity for more merit. God never causes evil. That's, that's on us, all the way back to the original sin and, and the fallen world that we live in. But God can always bring about good from the result of our bad choices. 
God is not indifferent to pain or suffering. On the contrary, he understands it, and he understands suffering perfectly because Jesus Christ, God the Son, became a man and suffered and died on the cross for me and for you. And why? Because he loves you. Now, there's, of course, a lot more to say about this. I think that we will um, we'll come back next week and, and pick this up because I really wanted to talk about the... Uh, you know, was the world really created in six days, for example? And, and uh, isn't it possible to just ignore this question? Do you have to choose? Do you have to decide if there's a God or not? Can't you just uh, go on your merry way? Well, the answer to that question is no. I want to talk about the Bible and science, right? Not only the six days of creation, but the other uh, miracles and so forth in the Bible. And is there a war, so-called? People say that. They say that there's a war between science and religion and is that true and what about uh, what about the um church throughout the ages and the rise of science did the church do something to hinder that or did the church actually help it and i think that the answer to some of these questions are going to be surprising to some people and maybe this is the sort of thing maybe if you've got a the atheist friend maybe you can have them uh, give a listen to this podcast i don't claim to be any kind of scientist. I'm not even a, a theologian either. All I am is a Catholic who believes what the church teaches and believes the evidence of my senses, common sense and faith. And that's no nonsense. All right. Hey, speaking of uh, no nonsense Catholicism coming up on the 7th of November, we're going to have a special virtual conference. They're going to be showing um, uh, a whole day long um, collection of the documentaries I did, what every Catholic needs to know about the Bible and Mary and the Pope and what every Catholic needs to know about hell. And I'm going to be hosting live with Terry Barber and we're going to be playing those um, uh, classic presentations with the likes of Scott Hahn and Tim Staples and Steve Ray and uh, Father Bill Casey and Kimberly Hahn and uh, and Mike Barber and Jess Romero. Uh, There's just a, a, a cavalcade, an array, a stellar array of Catholic apologetics apologists and theologians and uh, invite you to tune in it's going to be absolutely free you can register in advance also on the website uh, bmpr.org and tell then i'll see you next week and may god richly bless you and your family in the 1990s i lived and worked in hollywood but when my wife betty's mom took ill we relocated to orange county and it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church, so I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.